I got a phone call this morning from one of our oldest customers. He fired us. After 20 years, he fired us. Said he didn't know us anymore. I think I know why. We used to do business with a handshake, face to face. Now it's a phone call and a fax. Get back to you later with another fax, probably. Well, folks, something's got to change. That's why we're going to set out for a little face-to-face -face chat with every customer we have. But Ben, that's got to be over 200 cities. I don't care. Thanks. If you're the kind of business that still believes personal service deserves no, a lot more than lip service, what? welcome to United. Larry. Lewis. That's the way we've been doing business for over 60 years. Ben, where are you going? To visit that old friend who fired us this morning. United. Come fly the friendly skies. How many of you remember that commercial? That was one of my favorite commercials. Uh, that's, that commercial's almost 30 years old. Can you believe that? And the, and the resolution on the film actually shows that it was almost 30 years old. And I don't mean to encourage you to fly United. I do, but I'll readily admit that Another reason I know that that commercial is 30 years old is because ever since the merger between Continental and United, United has, seems to have forgotten all about customer service. But that's for another sermon, <laughs> another rant. <laughs> but what I loved about that commercial and still love about it is the emphasis on face-to-face. Uh, -face. He was talking about, you know, the, here's the way business is done now in this modern, with this modern technology. It's probably a fax and a phone call followed by another fax. And half of the room, at least in the first gathering, is saying, what's a fax? I mean, do we, does anybody still have a fax machine uh, anymore? anymore? But that, room, that commercial, I thought of it uh, as I was studying for this week's message. We're in this series, being good news to a world that needs it. And each week, looking at some aspect of being good news to a world that needs it, where we can look at the life of Christ or examples from Scripture and learn something and apply something about how to be good news to a world that needs it. And this week, the focus is on the importance of being good news in person, face to face, nose to nose, eyeball to eyeball, no matter how great our technology is, there's nothing quite like the power of actually being there, the force of actually embracing and seeing and sitting with somebody as they express the good news to you and the beauty of the good news to you. I have a bucket list. You know what a bucket list is. There are things you list that so you think, hey, before I die, I'd like to experience this and this and this. And uh, I've been... Every once in a while, I get opportunity to check something off the bucket list. One of the things that was on my bucket list uh, years ago was to own a Porsche. I love Porsches, and I actually owned one for 12 months so I could check it off the bucket list. Didn't see I had to own it forever. I just owned it for 12 months. 12 months is all of the agreement I could get out of my beloved wife. You can own it for 12 months, then you sell it. And I was able to sell it and break even. So I bought one. Jeff actually drove it. It was his first weekend here on staff, Pastor Jeff, 10 years ago. And he actually drove it home from the city, actually lent me the money for three days to buy it until uh, I could pay him back. And we did this together because he also loves Porsches. And we drove that thing home and then 
sold it a year later, and broke even. So I paid for all the repairs, which are significant when you own a Porsche. When your Porsche is running well, if it's well, it's still in the shop all the time. And everything broke even, so I was okay with it. It was on my bucket list. I checked it off. I never have to own another Porsche for which Brenda is very, very happy. And then there's another thing on my bucket list, and I'm excited because I get to check off of my bucket list something else in, in January. Uh, Brenda and I have a sabbatical, so starting December and January, I won't even be here. The first Sunday in, in December, I'll be here, but then we're going two months on sabbatical. We have certain movements that a sabbatical committee, sabbatical committee has helped us think through, and one of the movements uh, and the things we'll be looking into in that sabbatical uh, takes us to uh, Europe, and we're hanging out with some missionaries that uh, we've been in, involved with there. Uh, one of the things on my bucket list is, I'm a Rembrandt fan. I love Rembrandt. He's my favorite artist. But I've always wanted to, in person, see Rembrandt's prodigal son. I've seen pictures of it. I've seen it in books. I've seen it on the screen like you're seeing it. That's, see how big that is? That's a, it's much bigger than, uh, than a lot of people realize. It hangs in St. Petersburg in the Hermitage. So to see it in person, you have to go to Russia to see it. And my friend speaks Russian. He does his ministry in Russia. And so when we talked about going there and spending some time with him, working through this third movement of our sabbatical, I said, well, I've been praying. and I think God wants us to go to Russia. I mean, I don't know, maybe St. Petersburg. What do you think? And the long and the short of it is we get to go see this thing in person. Why is it so important to see it in person? Because there's, you can appreciate great art through a book, but there's nothing quite like going right up to it to where you set off the alarm and leaning over the railing and looking at the brush strokes and seeing the way it gleam, gleams in the light and seeing it from this angle and even still smelling the oil. And then for me, realizing <laughs> Rembrandt touched this one. Rembrandt made that little indentation with his brush right there in that thick oil. And it just, I'll, sit, I'll stand for hours in front of that thing and check off my bucket list because pictures are great. Reproductions and representations are pleasant, but nothing has the force, the power of seeing that great artwork in person. And nothing has the force or power of a face-to-face -face encounter with the good news. Dawns on me that Jesus has something in common with the experience of great art. That Jesus believed, while everyone around him was focusing on getting the doctrine right, keeping ourselves pure, getting the theology correct, hanging out with the right people, not soiling yourself by hanging around, around with the wrong people, keeping all the rules, making sure you're checking off everything on the list. Well, Jesus certainly thought doctrinal purity, doctrinal purity and theology were important. Don't get me wrong, he did. But what Jesus was most, if you could be obsessed, most obsessed with, most uh, uh, engaged with, was being present with people. He loved to be in the same room with people, to rub shoulders with people, to engage with people. Being present for Jesus was a big deal. 
represented by the fact that the answer to all of our need in terms of God's perspective was to actually come and be present with us. That's the, the technical term for that ministry is the ministry of the incarnation. God in the flesh became one of us, became one with us, rubbed shoulders with us, talked with us, walked with us, spoke with us, and is still present with us through the ministry of his Holy Spirit. Doesn't he even say before he's leaving his disciples, I'm not going to leave you as orphans. Don't worry, I'm still going to be present with you, but now I'm going to be present in you, and I'm going to send the Comforter, my Holy Spirit, to be with you. That's how important being present is to Jesus. And the idea I want to promote here this morning is that when Jesus was present, when Jesus was there with people, we see in this example that we'll look at today, he was usually involved with doing one of two things. He's either busy reassuring the broken or redirecting the proud. I challenge you to go back and read any story where Jesus is encountering people, and there's some version of that happening. He's either reassuring the broken, or he's redirecting the proud, the people who are not feeling very broken, who think they have everything all together. Jesus is saying, you might want to reconsider that, or doing something that causes that reconsidering, uh, reconsideration of what they're thinking. For Jesus, a big part of being truth was being there for people. Wasn't satisfied unless he was there for him. I want to revisit the text that we used last Sunday. So this is from the Gospel of Luke, and I invite you to stand for the reading of the Gospel. This is the same text, one of the texts I referred to last Sunday. And we're going to read it. And as we read it, as I read it, uh, look for one of those two aspects of Jesus as he's here and encountering. Remember, this is the story where he's invited to a banquet and uh, a loose woman comes in and invades, interrupts the party and starts uh, sitting at his feet, weeping and wiping his feet. And he talks to the host. And look at, look at this text and watch for Jesus doing one of those two things, or both. Uh, reassuring the broken or redirecting the proud. When one of the Pharisees invited Jesus to have dinner with him, he went to the Pharisee's house and reclined at the table. And a woman in that town who lived a sinful life learned that Jesus was eating at the Pharisee's house. So she came there with an alabaster jar of perfume. And I want to argue that if Jesus had learned that the woman was at the house. He is so committed to being present, he'd have gone there where she is, where she was. Picking back up on the text. As she stood behind him, at his feet weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears. And then she wiped them with her hair, kissed them, and poured perfume on them. It's an extravagant expression of her brokenness. And when the Pharisee who had invited Jesus saw this, he said to himself, if this man were really a prophet, he'd know who was touching him and what kind of a woman she is and that she's a sinner. And Jesus answered him, Simon, I have something to tell you. And Simon said, go ahead, teacher, tell me. Here's what Jesus says. Two people owed money to a certain moneylender. And one owed him five hundred denarii and the other fifty denarii. Neither of them had the money to pay him back, so he forgave the debts of both. Now which one of them would love him the more? 
And Simon replied, I suppose the one who had the bigger debt forgiven, 10 times the other debt, as a matter of fact. And Jesus said, you got that right. You have judged correctly. Then he turned toward the woman and he said to Simon, do you see this woman? I came into your house. You did not give me any water for my feet. She wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You did not give me a kiss. But this woman, from the time I entered, has not stopped kissing my feet. You did not put oil on my head, but she's poured perfume on my feet. Therefore, I tell you, her many sins have been forgiven, as her great love has shown. So her love is a representative representation of how aware she is of the depth of her uh, forgiveness and of her brokenness. But whoever has been forgiven little, Jesus said, loves little. Then Jesus said to her, your sins are forgiven. Your faith has saved you. Go in peace. May the Lord add his blessing to his holy word, his fully inspired message to us. Go ahead and take your feet, your seat. <coughs> you can take your feet to your seat with you if you want. But... And whenever we see Jesus present, because there's nothing that can replace actual presence. No texting, no phone calls, not even a handwritten letter really has the same force of somebody knocking on the door, coming into your life, sitting down with you, across from you, at a meal with you, eye to eye with you, and being present. That old school term is the ministry of presence. And Jesus is always interested in presence. He wants to be with people as he's bringing the good news to them. And when he's with those people, you'll see him in every story doing one or two things or both. He's either reassuring the broken or redirecting the proud. Did you see that showing up in that story? He reassures the broken woman. She's at his feet. Catch this picture. She's at the feet of Jesus weeping while everybody else is getting their first serving of the food. And they're all important. She's unimportant. She barges in and crashes this party. Everybody in the room except Jesus is wishing she wouldn't be there. And even the host is thinking she shouldn't be here. But Jesus, instead of spending his time with the people who could sort of elevate his career and fund his ministry, is there and present for her, reassuring the broken. In fact, he's impressed with her brokenness. So you have this juxtaposition between Jesus and the host who is a Pharisee. The Pharisee is saying, if this guy were a true prophet, he would recognize that she's out of bounds for him. She's beneath him. She was literally beneath him at that table. But he would know who she is and what she's done and how, un, how impure she is and how engaging with her makes him impure because that's some of the thinking that was going on. If he were a real prophet, he would know that he's above her and he wouldn't even talk with her. And he would have impressed everybody else in the room, by the way, because he would have lived into their understanding of who she is and what she should be allowed to do, and how she should be engaged and not engaged. And then you have Jesus, just the opposite. Of all the people he could be speaking with, to whom does he turn his attention? This broken life that somehow missed the mark of its potential. 
and practiced over and over and over things that broke the heart of God for whatever reason she was living the way she was living. We don't know what kinds of things came into her life, what options she had, what decisions she made, why she made them. We don't know. All Jesus knows is that, man, she's needy, she's broken, and this is not what I had in mind for her when I watched her being formed in her mother's womb. And he doesn't dismiss her sin. He doesn't pretend there is no sin. He's not going to try to make truth error and error truth. But he wants to lift her up and remind her of her value. So you get what Jesus does? He picks up on what everybody's thinking, even though nobody said anything. And he wants to reassure the broken. Because Jesus is impressed with the broken. He's impressed with the poor in spirit. He values the humble. And Jesus comes and figure out the power of this. He comes, it says in the text, and he looks at the woman. And while he's looking at this person whose life is broken and whose heart is broken, this woman who's been stepped on all her life, this woman who is not welcome in this room, he looks at her and actually speaks to Simon while he's looking at her. Picture that. So all these people are watching. They're all thinking what has been voiced here. What the heck is going on here? This is supposed to be Messiah, this prophet. He's not fitting the mold. He looks at her and he says, Simon, do you see this woman? When I came in here, you didn't give me anything for my head. You didn't wash my feet. She hasn't quit washing my feet. Do you see this woman, Simon? And he's looking at the woman. To whom is he actually speaking? Both. And he's reassuring her. I mean, can you imagine how that felt to her for him to speak words of affirmation? How would it feel to you? Jesus looks at you and speaks words of affirmation about you to somebody else. But man, you're picking up the message. Your heart has been dry. Your heart is like a dry sponge. Nobody said anything good to you. All they've done is use you. And then when they're done using you, they throw you away until the next time they get need to use you. You have no power. Nobody cares. Nobody really loves you. You don't even know what real love is like. You've been, for whatever reason, living a life that is not the life God had planned for you. You're a prostitute. When you walk down the street, you've, become, you've grown accustomed to people snickering and laughing and turning and walking the other way. And the same guy that was your client the night before is pretending like he has no time for you the day after. You're used to that. What kind of a life is that? And then this prophet that everybody's following, that's performing great miracles, that everybody's coming to see, that everybody wants to be around, everybody wanted to be at that dinner table. This prophet looks, and instead of affirming everybody else that has the power, he takes his time out and he lifts you up. And what Jesus is saying in so many words is, this woman has value and I see her. He's saying to her without saying it, I see you and you are precious to me. I say this to you so often because it, it happens to me so often when I get on my high horse and I think, well, I, I see that intersection. That was not designed for 15 tents, for people to be living you know, in those tents. Doggone it. I should have to get on the freeway and have to look at those tents 
and all those homeless people. And it's moments like that when I'm such an arrogant ass. There's just no other word that quite captures it. But the Holy Spirit has to remind me, Greco, I love you, but I don't love you more than the people sleeping in that tent. You get that? You're precious to me, but you're not more precious to me than any other human being. You're not. Deal with it. So please don't treat as valueless what I hold dear. I watched both of you being formed in your mother's womb. I know the numbers on each head. Those who have made great decisions, those who have it. Remember that old saying uh, we've used in here before? Some people are born on third base, and then they get up cheering as though they just hit a triple. (laughs) You didn't hit a triple, man. You were born there. And some people are born in the dugout. They make it to second base. They actually did better than the person born on third base, really. I mean, you see what I'm getting? And Jesus is saying, I love them as much as I love you. And he's saying to this woman, I love you as much as I love them. And he's saying to those Pharisees, I love her and you the same. And he's reassuring her of her value. He's not condoning her choices. And that's something that thinking Christians need to figure out. The church needs to be a thinking church. So we need to be able to say, my affirmation of someone's value isn't the same as my my, uh, uh, affirmation of their choices. Choices and value, they're not the same thing. Somebody makes choices that put them in a bad position doesn't mean they've surrendered their value. And by me affirming someone's value and lifting them up doesn't mean I affirm their their choices. So there's no compromise there. The compromise is to let my mind go to the crazy gutter that says somebody's choices equal what they're worth to God. And I'm worth more to God than they are. He's lucky to have me. That's, that's a poison that needs to be removed from the church. It's not a loving position to have. It's not a Christian or biblical position to have. And it's not what Jesus was about when he was present with people. He was always reassuring the broken of their value. And that reassuring ministry takes on some pretty measurable pieces. He publicly affirms the faith of this woman, and he does it in the presence of those who have dismissed her value, her human value. You know that the only prerequisite for being treated with dignity is being human. You understand that, right? Every human being desperately loved by God, except that God's not desperate. Powerfully loved by God. And she is, she is, her value is reestablished in the presence of those who are dismissing her, who wish she was not even in the room. That's the mark of a reassuring presence when we're there. Defends her against her accusers, those who would want to keep her broken and down. Do you know we live in a world, in fact, we probably are in a room right now with people who at least occasionally have succumbed to the temptation to keep somebody down so that we can stay above them, whatever form that might take. And we're, we're all capable of that. Some of us are even in the midst of practicing it right now. Uh, it's part of fallen humanity. To not be aware of that and to address it and root it out and call it what it is is not not real helpful. 
And Jesus comes and he lifts this woman's value. And he challenges those who would love to see her stay where she is. She's not good enough for them. Keep her down. She's at your feet groveling under the table. That's exactly where she belongs. And if you were a true prophet, you'd know that. And you'd make sure she could never stand up again. But you're not a true prophet, are you? Jesus proves that he is a true prophet and the bringer of good news. And then there's mercy and forgiveness. Mercy and forgiveness, the awareness that we have received it, and the representation of it being offered to everyone by Jesus, that's always a primary theme or component of Jesus being present. There's nothing like being present for bringing good news. And Jesus recognizes her sin and then forgives it. Your sins are many. You're, you're the 500 denarii dude in the story. And you're forgiven. That's the gospel, folks. You know, it's good for us to remember that once in a while, isn't it? That Jesus comes and forgives our sin. The person that comes to Christ and says, ah, my sin, the depth of it. Please forgive me, Jesus. Take my sin and hide it in your cross. Take my sin, pile it on your shoulders and trade me my sin for your purity. Show me that mercy. Please show me that mercy. And the Bible teaches us, and Christ promises us, that that transaction happens, and we're forgiven. When there's forgiveness of sin, that's good news. And those who are responsible to bring the good news for a world that desperately needs it, come in like Jesus came in that place, in that event. And we identify with the broken, and we reassure the broken, and part of that reassuring message is, there can be a whole new start for you, a whole new life. Then he goes and offers her a blessing that is easy to miss in this text, because he finishes that, remember he finishes that by offering her peace. Uh, uh, Peace be with you. Go in peace. But this isn't just your standard go in peace that equals like, okay, see you, see you tomorrow, go in peace. This is one that happens only twice in the New Testament, here, and then he offers it to the woman who touched him in the crowd and got healing. She touched her, his, the hem of his garment and found healing. She was, had constant bleeding and it stopped right away. He offers her the same blessing. It's a little different. It's a change up. He doesn't just say go in peace. He actually literally says, Go, a command, go into peace, like dive into the pool of peace. Go into it. It's a different Greek word, and it's on purpose. It's like he's saying, you had this life out here, now dive into your new life. Your sins are forgiven. Dive in there, go in there, go into peace, and walk in peace. Get wet with peace. Be uh, be drenched in peace, in shalom. Don't we all long for that? The calm in our hearts that... Reminds us of our value. Jesus is always about reassuring the broken when he's present. And we should be about that too. But he doesn't stop there. He also redirects the proud. The French philosopher Montaigne said something that stands out to me. He said, on the highest throne in the world... 
we still all sit on our bottoms. You'd be highest throw in the world, but <laughs> you still have to sit on your bum just like everybody else. And I think implied in that is the idea that, and you can fall on your bum just like everybody else too. Jesus seems to have always been interested in helping the proud, the confident, the certain remember that, to regain that perspective. He gives an invitation to rethink things. When I was in high school, I, I'm sure I've told you the story before, but I made some really derogatory remarks publicly, right out loud, about Angela Davis. Angela Davis was in the news back then, and I made a terrible like the worst racist remark you could make now. I was 16 or 17, I was coming out of my uh, chemistry class and just an idiot. And uh, um, I mean, I come out in the hallway and it was all this in between classes, you know, so everybody's bustling in the hallway at Midi High School in San Jose and we got the lockers are all in the hallway there, you know, and I'd come out and some, something had happened with Angela Davis in the news and I had uh, yelled out some brain-dead remark about her that was uh, racially insensitive. <clears throat> I'm ashamed of it, but it happened. And I'm uh, walking in the hallway and bolting out from the chemistry lab is the chemistry professor, Angel Sierra. And Angel was a golden, gold gloves boxer. I didn't know it back then. I probably thought I could whoop him back then, but I, there's no way. So Angel comes out and he catches me before I take three or four steps and in front of everybody, right? And this is a Catholic boys' high school. And so this was, this was regular behavior by teachers then. And he grabs me by the shirt, lifts me up, slams me, my back against the lockers. My toes are just barely dangling on the floor. And he's about two inches from me face to face. My head hits the back of the locker. Everybody stops and watches. And then Angel catches himself and in a soft voice says, you don't really want to talk like that now, do you, Greco? And I said, no, no, sir, I don't. He was giving me a not-so-gentle invitation to redirect my thinking. Jesus does that less violently, but every bit as forcefully with Simon. When he looks at the woman, but speaks to Simon. And he offers this story. This happens. Who, who loves him more? And Simon says, well, the one who was forgiven the most. And then all those Pharisees and guests watch and they're astonished. In fact, they're frustrated when Jesus actually forgives the sin of the least popular, least worthy person in the room. He redirects the proud. And in hearing that story, everybody in there has to say, hmm, maybe... Whoa, he's got a point. I've got to rethink this. The mark of that re, marks of that redirecting presence are pretty obvious too. Jesus does this, although forcefully, in ways that contribute to an opportunity to rethink things in light of the heart of God. And he's, he's saying something that invites people, it's right on the line, but it invites people into further thinking or further conversation as opposed to inviting people to resist, and I'm not going to rethink a thing because the way you've communicated that to me. He invites more thinking, more discussion. He, he says things in such a way that you have to go away reconsidering what you thought 
before. And this is something that comes out of the merciful heart of Jesus. So Jesus would see this invitation to rethink things as an act of mercy, as an act of kindness. Even though it was strong, he's not driven by a desire to rebuke for the sake of rebuking. His motive is, I've got to challenge you in the way you're thinking there. Think this way. What about this? How about that? It's challenging, but it's not demeaning. It doesn't shut down conversation. It invites further thinking and discussion. Those are some of the things that if we're going to be good news to a world that needs it, and part of being good news is being present, and we're present and we're going to see the broken that need to be reassured or the proud that need to be redirected, these are some of the tools we need to take with us. Jesus seemed to always be aware of the human propensity to find its way back to the garden and back to the tree and to re-pick the fruit of pride and eat it over and over again. I mean, that's the original sin, really, pride. And he wants to invite the proud to rethink things and to be more like what they despise in the woman who's groveling at his feet, more aware of my need, more aware of my brokenness, more aware of the fact that I have received mercy and I had to be more naturally inclined to offer mercy. There's nothing quite like seeing the, the brush strokes, being good news to a world that needs it in person. Face to face. Let me finish by just putting it as simply as I can put it. You can't be good news. We can't be good news unless we're willing to be where there's bad news. And we can't possibly survive being where there's bad news unless we've fully experienced the presence and power of the good news. Do you see how that works? We've got to be there Reassuring the broken, redirecting the proud, being reassured when we're broken, being redirected when we're arrogant, when we're proud. Remembering that there was a day when each of us said to God, forgive my sins, come into my life, let's start over. I'm going to learn about Jesus and practice the life of Jesus and surrender to Jesus. You know, if... Here's how one author put it. If our greatest need had been information, God would have sent us an educator. If our greatest need had been technology, God would have sent us a scientist. If our greatest need had been money, God would have sent us an economist. If our greatest need had been pleasure, God would have sent us an entertainer, but our greatest need was forgiveness. So God sent us a savior 
And according to the Great Commission, which says, go into all the world and teach all ethnicities to follow me. Make them my disciples. According to that Great Commission, that Savior that was sent to us is now sending us into a broken world to redirect the proud, to reassure the broken. Take everybody by the cheeks and turn their face to Jesus to say, consider him and to be good news to a world that really, really needs it.